underscore December 5th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 179. The Expendable Babysitter's Club. To the Overthinking and Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, the capital of everything cool, I'm Matthew Adler, here with the panel, <laughs> to overthink all manner of media popular culture. And uh, we're going to get a little bit into publishing and electronic publishing tonight, because there's an author in our midst. Ooh. But... Uh, Will you but, sign my Kindle? Yes, that's right. It's Kurt Vonnegut, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Brains. Brains. I want to fill your brains with knowledge and satire. Brains. So that's my Vonnegut zombie voice. I apologize in advance and after. So uh, la- later on, uh, in an interview with Kurt Vonnegut. No, just kidding. We don't have Kurt Vonnegut. Though, if you know. You know, I don't know. Uh, Starship Troopers is being remade. That's the thing we're leading with. Um, this is from Slash Film. Apparently, uh, Fast and Furious producer Neil Moritz has hired Thor and X-Men first class screenwriters Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz to write a new adaptation of the classic sci-fi novel. So this is not a, a remake of, the, of a movie. It's a new adaptation of the novel. Um, and is, I guess, meant to reboot the franchise, where by franchise you mean, you know, cult classic original and, uh, and two straight-to-DVD uh, sequels, including Starship Troopers 3 Marauder, w- which is really my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we're going to actually we're gonna help these guys out here. Panel, your question today is, if you were to remake Starship Troopers, uh, what changes would you make? From the Paul Verhoeven uh, classic, uh, first first uh, first version of it, first in the alphabet and first in our hearts, it's always Peter Fenzel. <laughs> Happy Sunday, Matt. Happy Sunday, <laughs> and to you. <laughs> I'm grateful for any day in which we're not being devoured by giant semi-intelligent bugs. Uh, you know, every day is a gift. Uh, so we thought there was a brain know- on cue. We thought, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. As we know, the first Starship Troopers movie takes a rough summary of the events of the book and adds on a whole bunch of self-conscious, somewhat irrelevant political commentary about specific forms of government, right? Um, and so what I'd love to see is I'd love to see the sequel. This is really what made that movie great, right, is its, is its political commentary and its scathing attack on, on militaristic fascism. Uh, and I'd love to see that go to the next level in the new version. I want to see crowdsourcing. I want to see social media. I want to see customized versions of Starship Troopers that are, we have the technology distributed, redubbed to cities across America uh, and maybe the world, but America first because uh, they have, uh, I know if we distribute to places that don't have locally representative forms of government, the idea doesn't work, um, where people have their version of Starship Troopers offer heavy-handed commentary on their own issues of local government. Mm-hmm. Like, I want, to, <laughs> I want to see, like, oh, like this water supply sure is managed in a suboptimal way. We could use a much cheaper vendor. Oh, well, no, was, it's the bugs. I was thinking, I was like, thinking even, <laughs> even more local than that. Like, God, they are painting the lines on the roads in the middle of a Sunday. <laughs> Couldn't they do that at 3 in the morning when no one's out on the roads? Oh, no, the bugs! 
yeah, yeah, you can paint a line. You can't paint a line on the road when someone disables your hand. Ow, 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 why are you doing this? This metaphor is insufficiently robust. Ow, ow, ow. So, yeah, I love, I love, I feel like Americans don't focus enough on how ridiculous their local governments are, and we focus way too much on how much our national and global governments are. So, I just love to see a post apocalyptic, not even post apocalyptic, apocalyptic military drama that really takes people to task for the ridiculous zoning regulations that keep the Dunkin' Donuts on the wrong side of the highway for no reason. So that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. That, mm-hmm. that is what I am. Uh, I grew up in a town where Dunkin' Donuts was illegal, um, and, uh, and only criminals had Dunkin' Donuts. On what, on, <laughs> no, what, on what grounds was Dunkin' Donuts? Well, they, they had a zoning regulation that kept large chain stores from opening in the downtown area. Ah. Um, and, and so there was a blimpy that had been grandfathered in and opened before the regulations had taken hold. And then right around the time when I moved on to college was when I believe Dunkin' Donuts won a lawsuit against the town and was permitted to open a store. And now there's like a Dunkin' Donuts and there's a couple Starbucks and stuff like that. Actually, they they must might have just, been a- I mean, those I, – I never thought that the, the particular profit on one individual store was all that great and it was more a volume business. It doesn't seem like it makes sense to go to all the trouble of – makes economic sense. I mean, to go to all the trouble of suing a municipality uh, to open one little Dunkin' Donuts, especially given that people will drive 20 minutes to, you know, have their uh, bacon, egg, and cheese. Well, yeah, but then the bugs come, right? And then that changes everything. No, I... No one did sue for 30 years. That's kind of the point. Um, and it must have been some local franchiser who finally was like, yeah, this represents enough money to me that it's worth it to just end the silliness I guess so. right now. But also, Silly String is illegal in my hometown, or at least was when I was in high school. Um, you had to buy it across the border. Like, possessing it was, was a minor offense of some sort. So, it was a serious business. Senior prank, guys. Oh, man. Yeah, the bug sticks its forcep into your brain, and then, like, string just shoots out of your ears. Uh, and that <laughs> represents the horrible. And it's such a cleanup job, you know? Like, so much, so much money has to be spent cleaning that up. You got to have somebody with a little broom, and it's just, it's ridiculous. So... Mark Lee. <laughs> All right. It's good to be back on the podcast, by the way. Yeah, out for we're a glad of to have you. Finally, the rock has come back to this small corner of the internet. All right. Uh, Pete wants to really amp up the political commentary uh, of, the, of the original, I mean, of the, of the Paul Verhoeven version. I want to completely de- make one that's completely devoid of that. That's completely straight uh, telling of a battle of humanity against bugs. Um, okay. And here's why. Um, it, I really want uh, my sense of uh, superiority over, you know, the unwashed masses who consume this tripe pop culture and my um, my sense of cynicism that Hollywood can't produce anything that's interesting. I want those senses to be validated. And, so, and, and, and you know, so if they went the other way and they tried to make some really incisive commentary, um, you know, uh, a really clever satire. I feel like I couldn't possibly measure up to the Verhoeven original, so they might as well do something that's completely terrible that we can all laugh at. Well, but they have Starship Troopers 2, Hero of the Federation, and Starship <laughs> Troopers 3, Marauder, like, for specifically that purpose, right? Like, didn't they make, like, the two straight-to-video sequels to Starship Troopers? Although I haven't seen them. I imagine that they're relatively soft on the political commentary, right? Cause- probably a safe assumption. Well, because the political commentary made the first one successful, obviously. Uh, <laughs> by successful, I mean not really. <laughs> by successful, I mean we still talk about it like 14 years later, but I guess we also still talk about Waco, and that wasn't necessarily successful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question, actually. Like the long tail 
uh, you know, economics of the original Starship Troopers, right? It wasn't, it was considered a box office failure. Is that correct? But we are making some assumption that because it became a cult classic that uh, it, what, it eventually became uh, profitable, economically successful. Yeah, it's a movie that made its money back in DVD sales. Let's see. Domestic gross production budget, $105 million. Domestic theatrical gross, uh, $54 million. That's a flop. Um, that's hard. Yeah, that's a flop. Well, no, I mean, you know, the worldwide gross was uh, $120 million plus the uh. whatever the DVD um, – uh, whatever the DVD uh, profits were, you know. Yeah, I'm, I mean, there must be a Starship Troopers two mundane edition, right? Like so, <laughs> so that means that there at least somebody has to be buying these things. I want to yeah. know how many people still get checks because of Starship Troopers, like a dozen, two dozen, like three dozen. Casper Van Diem's residuals. I got I got my check this month, Peter. Did didn't you get yours? What your, they sent you your check. Well, yeah, because I watched it and I wrote, and I wrote an article on it, so I get like you know it's like six cents, so it's not a lot, but I mean you know times you know times twelve months. There's a bar in Hollywood Man. where you can take your residual check for pennies and get a free drink. I think you get dinner if you uh, if you have a one cent residual check. I think you. Uh, really? <laughs> That's amazing. That actually happens. Like residual checks be written for the pennies. Yeah, which like they, it effectively costs more to process the labor to process the check and like the paper that the, the check is printed on. Than, oh, it costs a lot more because those checks go come from payroll at the studios and then they go to the Screen Actors Guild or whatever union or guild you happen to belong to where they are processed by your guild. Uh, you know, so there's another set of like a half dozen hands that that pairs of hands that goes on your check and then it's mailed, you know, at, at some expense. And then it goes to your agency where your agent's assistant opens it, calls you and tells you you have a check and then you drive. <laughs> to freaking Burbank or whatever to pick up your check for a penny. Anyway, good times. Yeah, I've, this is another subject that I could talk about at length because of my professional background, but won't because I don't want to get fired. But yes, check processing is check processing. <laughs> And there are ways to make check processing more efficient, but it depends on consumer behavior, people's confidence and willingness to deal in different sorts of transactions. Pete, are you, are you trying to tell me that you're going to deny our fans the satisfaction of listening to an entire Overthinking It podcast episode <laughs> about check processing because you're afraid about your stupid little job? Okay, I, I, see, I, I see where the priorities are. All right, I will just say that my favorite employment training video I ever watched, other than the video I watched when I worked at Applebee's that was hosted by Ted from Hey Dude, which was awesome, was um, the training video that I once watched that I wasn't really supposed to be watching. I just accessed it on a library at work, which was like how what to do if you're – like cash and check processing center is robbed and it was like a series of dramatizations uh of like training dramatizations of like and it was like they tried really hard to avoid all the stereotypes right it was like they, a black guy shows up at the door and they don't want and it's like don't open the door for him and then you look behind him and there's like the white guy in the security guard outfit is holding a gun to his back and it's like oh no our, our expectations have been flipped on their heads and the guys yeah, wearing no. the clown masks are actually behind the counter they're, they're, exactly 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 <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of it's it's you know, banking ain't all sexy all the time. Sometimes it's involves check check cashing, uh, and I really can't talk any more about it, or I'm going to get fired. So I need to stop right now. It is awesome. That's all I'm going to say. Those people do great work. So um, I think I don't think every I think even the 99 percent can get behind the people who have to count the money and put print out the checks. So uh, so there you go. John Parrish, save Pete Fentel from getting fired. <laughs> What up? Hey, look at this smoke bomb I just found. <laughs> Ninja John, 
in action. Craziness. So, all right. So we seem to keep hitting on the the political aspects of Starship Troopers, which are, I think, our favorite part of it. So I'm going to go a completely different direction. Whereas in the original, and this is kind of obvious, but whereas in the original, the the fascist overtones were sort of a satire. In my remake, I want the fascist overtones to be deliberate and straight faced and serious. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want people marching out of the theater, pounding their chests and grunting. That's what I want to happen. I want. <laughs> so you I want, want it to be buy- the Expendables. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I want Expendables three. Let's shoot some aliens. In fact, why not? I mean, the the original Expendables had had so little had so little connection to reality as such that there's no reason that in the second one, which is coming out in the fun they couldn't fight aliens i mean they could fight aliens they could go back in time and win in the revolutionary war they could they could do anything because the sole reason that movie exists is to have stallone schwarzenegger willis chuck norris jason statham jet lee dolph lundgren uh etc shoot things. Terry Brooks. Terry Brooks. well to be fair they do this for themselves and for their clients not in the service of a nation state I'd love to see them get together to form some sort of club to conduct babysitting activities. I think that would be <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps be yeah, children. Yeah, get, we get the babysitters club. <laughs> those are those people are expendable. Let me tell you. <laughs> hey, it's, it's, Sorry. Uh, every every year, some of us graduate. Every year, more freshmen join us. It's just that we just never run out. We're expendable babysitters. <laughs> expendable, you know, that, yeah, I like the expendable babysitters club. That's a good. <laughs> we, should, we should pitch that to Hollywood. You made me think that, like, you know, you know, what my favorite thing is about alien bugs. What? What is that? You know, I, I keep getting older; they stay the same age. That's really <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, right. Matthew. So that is. So- but I want my, that's what I want my remake of Starship Troopers to be. Essentially, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Randy Couture as babysitters <laughs> who are violent mercenaries. Yeah. There. Make that happen. Excellent. Awesome. I, I'm going one of two, two ways with my Starship Trooper remake. Uh, one is that the whole thing is one big co-ed shower scene. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get mentioned. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, right. And this is a sign of how enlightened the future is and the future army is, is that everyone uh, just everyone has one big gang shower. Um, you know, they don't even separate by genders in the locker room. But I, here's what I want to do, actually, is I want to I want a full metal jacket this movie. Right. I want to uh, I want to actually really expand the time that they spend in training. I want a lot more interaction between the uh, the drill sergeant and Casper Van Diem, or whoever is playing the Casper Van Diem, uh, you know, part. I want a uh, Vincent D'Onofrio character, you know, who washes out and and shoots himself in the head instead of getting shot in the head by uh, Casper Van Diem. Oh, spoiler alert for Full Metal Jacket, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, and then and then I want war. I want war, uh, the war experience to be an experience more of suspense than it is really a violence and action and sort of thrills, uh, more a kind of uneasiness because that's, that's really what bugs mean to me. You know, I'm not terrified of bugs, but bugs kind of creep me out. They, they just sort of make me a little, uh, a little uneasy. And that's, that's the kind of thing. Like when you're, you know, walking through the jungles, I don't know. I think it's something about the duality of man. 
Can I say something about the shower scenes for a second? <laughs> please, please do. I wish you would. <laughs> so here's the thing about the Starship Trooper shower scenes, right? Is that there's shower scenes, co-ed shower scenes in Starship Troopers, and Verhoeven throws this kind of thing into some of his movies. This is the only one he throws it into to indicate that in the future, uh, we've we gender issues in the workplace have been surpassed to such an extent that you don't even have to shower separately when you're soldiers. You're all able to shower together. But let's think about Starship Troopers for a second, and like. Spoilers here, like the plot of the movie that isn't about the bugs is all about coworkers in the military, like being sexually involved with each other in a way that gets like a whole bunch of people killed. Right. <laughs> like, like, like seriously, like, like the main plot of the movie is that like one army officer is sleeping with one Navy officer, but then the Navy officer sleeps with her superior officer. And then the other army officer is in the barracks with another army officer who's stalking him and trying to trap him into sleeping with him. And then their commanding officer is like monitoring their sexual activity and clocking it for them. Right. And it's oh, give me five, give me 10 minutes before you get to reporting duty. Right. And it's like, Oh, this is fun and games is happening. And like people's brains are getting sucked out and all sorts of nonsense happens. So like maybe they should split up the freaking showers. Like seriously, like they don't. Maybe they're not nearly as enlightened as they think they are. And certainly, this professional environment does not appear to have progressed to the point where people can actually handle. Right. This it gives. Yeah. I mean, your point is that it gives the lie. The actual plot of the movie gives the lie to to certain aspects of this of the movie's social comment. Right. Yeah. Oh, I also think that it's interesting because they ramp up both ends of it, right? Like, they ramp up this idea of gender equality in the armed forces in the movie versus the book, but they also ramp up, like, the heteronormative melodrama in the movie versus the book. Right. And those two things are, like, fundamentally opposed to each other and are saying, like, exactly the opposite thing. Which, of course, since it's, like, a self-conscious satire and not really meant to be a coherent statement of any sort, uh, it's sort of fine. But it is kind of interesting that, like, they really don't earn it. Um, <laughs> they really don't. Unless it's just, like, they realize that, that unless they actually did a statistical analysis and determine that relative shower circumstances just aren't important, right? And it's just cheaper to build just one shower because they realize that it just doesn't matter. Like, there's not a statistically significant correlation between whether they shower together or not and whether people end up killing each other or getting each other killed because of their fraternization and fornication like, with their coworkers. So, like, might as well, right? That sounds like a McKinsey study waiting to happen. <laughs> I'm going to call some management consultants on that. Are you saying like McKinsey or Kinsey? Like which one are we talking? About? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like McKinsey, but spelled like uh, spelled like Doctor Kinsey. Exactly, exactly. It's like the Irish Kinsey. Although that one, it's just you don't have sex and you feel bad about it and you drink. But um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Irishman here by descent. You wouldn't guess it from the name. Hoi Hey, Pete, I have a question about the economics of babysitting. You grew up with a lot of sisters, so were were you around babysitting a lot? Was I was a Red Cross babysitter myself so i grew up with babysitters my sisters were all babysitters i was a babysitter like i had baby yeah yeah no i know about babysitting do you have so. do you have a comment on on the economics of babysitting or, or i mean how it's organized that is to say how would you improve the efficiency and the profitability of babysitting would it be desirable to organize into some kind of of uh union of babysitters into a you're, you're seriously asking whether the Babysitter's Club is, like, a good idea, right? Yes, That's that is saying. exactly what I'm asking. <laughs> okay. So, so here's the idea, right, is that, like, the reason the Babysitter's Club is the good idea is because it's a, it's a marketing collective, right? It's like a – it's a collect- so the, the idea is that the kids – the girls get together, and I'm not speaking specifically to the books, but I'm speaking in sort of a general sense about the kind of institution that the books represent. There are babysitting jobs that are out there. 
it's actually you know it's almost it's almost like um the game of operation in a little bit and that like you could push it so far but if you like touch the sides the buzzer goes off right so here's the deal babysitters benefit tremendously from the gross inefficiencies in babysitting right like like a babysitter gets paid a much much more money for their work generally than a professional child care worker does Right, like getting actually getting a babysitting is more expensive than getting daycare on like a minute per minute basis, and also based on the amount of work and, and expertise and professionalism you expect the babysitter to have versus the professional daycare worker. Professional daycare worker is supposed to be able to take care of like maybe some sort of rudimentary learning stuff, and and you know they're supposed to be socializing the children with each other, and they're supposed to be playing games, and it's supposed to be a conducive sort of pre-educational environment. Whereas the babysitter's job is literally just to like make sure that like a ninja doesn't come in the darkness and steal the baby. Or, like, that the baby, like, doesn't eat the crib and die, right? Like, the babysitter can sit on the couch and do their job. So it's a huge social bias where, like, the babysitter is usually a girl. Usually you know them, right? Like, and you pay them extra because of this, like, sort of class thing. But also you feel safe because of the social relationship that you have with their, with their parents. But I would say that, that – I mean, I grew up in a pretty affluent town where the babysitting rates were really high, um, but, uh, which was why it was one of the reasons I liked babysitting. I mean, I also enjoyed it. It was fun. But, um, but, but babysitting is much more expensive than childcare, right? So a babysitter's club has to be careful because what – what you're trying to do is you're trying to go out there and you're trying to connect and make those social relationships with all those people who are paying their friends daughters to babysit for them and their friends sons on like a 10% basis or whatever right like they're paying their friends daughters and sons to babysit for them they pay them extra because of that sense of comfort they get from who they are and because of the different social norm about about this sort of thing it's almost a form of like you know client patron kind of stuff rather than employment huh. but the problem is once you get past a certain point in organization then you start dealing with the actual market for childcare. Like if you scale up too much, if you become too impersonal, if you cease to be a babysitting organization and become actually professional, if anybody gets any sort of benefits out of it, right? Like then you have to compete against professional daycare, which makes like much, much less money, right? So, so I would say that like babysitting already is a total waste uh, in a lot of ways for the, the person hiring the babysitter. Or is it, right? Because you're also thinking like, well, do I really like professional childcare? This might be a situation where the market isn't really giving us what we want out of the situation, right? Like, and we're willing to, to live with this sort of traditional thing in sort of a Michael Pollan way, right? Where it's like, well, the tradition has certain ancillary benefits we don't expect to have from this market-driven product you know, commodification of this thing that we're purchasing, right? So it's like, well, I do kind of feel better having a babysitter, but is that just because I'm biased or is it because I'm racist or because I, I feel safer with a teenager with my kid than, than an adult, right? Like um, that sort of thing. So you sort of see the problem, right? And you see the issue where like you can't scale the babysitter's club into like a nationwide collective. Um, you'd have legal problems, you'd have regulatory problems, you'd have overhead and you'd have to pay for, and then your rates would have to go down because you people wouldn't see that personal connection with the people that they're hiring. Sure. Um, yeah, so that, be, that's, that's it would have to be on the level of like a town or something like that, you know. Yeah, and honestly, it's I mean, even if you think about like shoveling snow or raking leaves, like it really has to be under the table. It has to be in uh, what is it? System D? Have you heard that term? I no. think it's called or like Sector D. I forget whether it's System D or Sector D, but it's like an official term, not official, but like economists and yeah. Mark people are, are reading. Yeah, it's they talking about the underground economy, like the sector of the economy that does like black market stuff, gray market stuff. More, more like um, your friend this, knows a guy who knows a guy who can come over and clip your hedges. Like that's yeah, the, se- the sector that doesn't 
yeah, the sector that doesn't rely on credit card transactions or any formal banking, but you know, just you know, cash exchanges or favors in kind. And the the most recent time I read about this was in a recent. It was either Wired or Forbes or some some article like that, which estimated that you know transactions in sector D account for probably roughly half the wealth or half the exchange that goes on in the world as a whole at any given point, which which makes me think that sector D isn't so much the off-the-books section of the economy, but sectors A through C are the overly structured section of the economy, whereas the rest of it is just, you know, people doing what they do. Right, right, right. Which is, I think, very. I think one of the arguments around it is that like it's very good for efficiency and it's very bad for wealth creation, which is maybe a good thing. Um, but it's that like it's very hard to get rich doing sector D business, like you know, drug dealers living with their moms and all that other stuff, because like you do end up kind of wheeling and dealing a little bit, and like you don't get these big economies of scale to benefit the people at the top of the organization. Like and you, you do in the sector. You don't have le- legal protections. I mean, right? You don't have recourse yeah. to uh, you know to the kind of social protections we have in place. When- well, that's that's why you have the mafia. That's what the mafia does. Like seriously, well, that's what organized crime does. Is it protect, protect sector D economic interests? And they're also um, lots from of the bugs, right? They protect it from, yeah, from, from the, the aliens, from the bugs, from, from the giant alien bugs. And there are also lots of countries around the world where you know government protection is more like government quote unquote protection. You know, I'm, I'm thinking like you know Central African or Sub-Saharan republics where you know being able to conduct business. W- uh, away from the ages of you know the 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 current ruling current ruling power is uh, is more of a benefit than yeah. than a cost and you also have sec- large sections of the world where the use of public services like that is a section section d activity or system d activity where like you have to bribe the police in order for them to care about you because the police don't get paid enough by the government for them to want to do their jobs just on that own reason like they in order for the police to feed their families they need you to give them a kickback in order for them to come to your house right so like in that situation the public services themselves become part of this sort of i mean whatever underground economy we can we can talk about it however we want um yeah, I mean, I'm also thinking about like nannying and au pairing, and like, well, like a great a great example I think is uh, the situations we get sometimes where uh, people go on vacations that are really work vacations. We have people like that around here a lot of the time from Eastern Europe and Central Europe in particular that I run into uh, in various in various stores and stuff where it's like you know you get a job working for a couple weeks. Uh, you know, and you work for like a bakery or for like a, a clothing store or something, and 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 then you, in exchange for that, you get your travel paid, and like you get to hang out, and maybe you get a couple weeks off before you have to go back home, and you get to like visit the United States and, and travel around, and like the work visa gives you the clearance to come, and like it's that whole thing, like things. There's more kinds of product uh, innovation, I guess, in that kind of work. Um, but yeah, but it's all very deceptive. It makes better deal. That sweet. What? How do I get that deal? That sounds sweet. Like I, I <laughs> well, like to know. I'd like to. Oh wait, I, I'm an American already, so I, I guess it's like permanent vacation. I mean, you can do it in other countries. I think the American, the version our friends would most likely do is like the sort of I want to teach English overseas because I want to see the world, which is yeah, of course okay. a structured activity, but has a similar sort of like social energy behind it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, and it actually works. I mean, I you know I have a bunch of friends who have done that, and it it, it is a great racket. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it's a skill that's in demand. And it's important to keep in mind when you're thinking about regulatory regimes and institutionalization that the people will, can and do work around these things. Um, and I'm thinking nannies are also more expensive than professional daycare people. So I think that, that maybe if you went into it, you could probably find a lot of like social class issues there where like hiring a 
person to take care of your kid who isn't trained but appears to be like of a high social class, like that makes them significantly more money than somebody who's more trained but like is not perceived to have that kind of relationship with what you. Did the, what did the Red Cross make you do to certify you as a babysitter? Uh, well, I had to take a course, and uh, the course culminated with a test. I learned baby was it, CPR. Was it like sit- was it like sitting? Like uh, was the like were there you know basic and advanced topics in sitting next to the crib? Yeah, oh. like I was, I was thinking like where you, you sit, you how you sit, whether you cross your legs or not. You know, <laughs> I, mean, like, like, I thought you were saying they bring us into a room and they just make us stand for like forty five minutes. <laughs> at I this know- point, at this point, I can't tell if uh, Pete's Red Cross certification as a babysitter is a joke or is actually true. No, it's true. They, wow. You basically <laughs> – it's true because they want people who have basic skills to save babies if they get in trouble. And so it's it's like – a lot of it, it's like very rudimentary first aid and very rudimentary like baby CPR. Right? And that's what the Red Cross – that's its bread and butter, right? And then the rest of it is like um, learning the developmental – the early developmental phases of the babies, like to the extent that they're willing to teach them to like entirely unprofessional like 14 and 15-year-olds, right? Like, um, you know, in this age, the baby is interested in this kind of toy. Like at this age, you should give them a mobile, but don't bother giving them a book because they won't be able to read it. Well, obviously books are obvious, but it's like this is the age where those, where peekaboo is fun, this, right? Like, this is the age where it's appropriate to watch Starship Troopers. Yes, which is all ages because they, they need to learn about the evils of their oppressive, fascistic, militaristic society right. and also they need to see the group showers because uh, that's what babies need more than anything else is, is, is breasts. No, I shouldn't say this. Women <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast, there. help us. Fendel, a good thing. Wow. A good thing we strayed away from the stuff that's going to get you fired because uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was dangerous for a minute. Uh. No, you, you, uh, you, can talk about, you can talk about boobs all he wants. You just can't talk about financial services. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I'm not, I don't actually work as a babysitter anymore. I mean, I, my certification has lapsed. And it ended with a written test, just to answer your question, like a written test on, on safety procedures and child development and like care standards and things right. like that. Like keep, yep. keep the baby away from the blinds pull cord and things like this. Yeah, you know, know what it, what sort of cabinets they should stay away from, and like you know, all that sort of nonsense. Dangerous like, cabinets, <laughs> ones that are full of crocodiles. Actually, yes, <laughs> right. those cabinets. So. Uh, moving on, uh, the Kennedy Center honors five leaders in performing arts. Uh, the medal recipients are Meryl Streep, uh, yeah, Barbara Cook, the uh, the singer uh, known as an interpreter oh. of sing- Stephen Sondheim. Uh, she's kind Uh-oh. of. A- classically trained Broadway singer, Neil Diamond, Yay. singer and songwriter, <laughs> Sonny Rollins, jazz saxophonist, saxophonist, jazz saxophonist and composer, and uh, okay. Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. Uh, that's lazy. It's like, oh, we have four people. We need a fifth one. Let's add Yo-Yo Ma. Let's just because you- he's, he's the best cellist ever. Like, whatever. I mean, he's not, but he Does is. Does anyone else play cello? I swear, I never see on television or I mean, I never see a different cellist than Yo-Yo Ma. In college, Let's my my friend was a music major. My roommate was a music major, and he and I had a uh, had a joke that like wherever a cello is being played, Yo-Yo Ma is there. You know, he just materializes wherever <laughs> the sound of a cello is heard. Well, we lost Jacqueline Dupre for or else she would probably be that person, although she was also crazy. One of my best friends in high school and middle school was a cellist and was crazy about Jacqueline Dupre. Did you ever watch the Hillary and Jackie movie? Yes. Which was based yeah, based off of the book that was written by her sister after her death for multiple sclerosis, I want to say, right? Like, um, is, is what Jacqueline Dupre died of, I want to say? Something like um, that. I might- MS, I think. Uh, um, yeah, but I mean, she was this like firebrand musical. Uh, yeah, her musicality was was 
very great, but she also had this weird thing with her sister's husband and all this other like drama and nonsense. Whereas Yo-Yo Ma is like very safe, right? Like, although how hilarious would it be? Oh my god, how funny would it be if Yo-Yo Ma had a sex scandal, like big sex scandal? Like if it's like Yo-Yo Ma is like having sex with all the Kardashians at the same time, and like Chloe <laughs> is heartbroken, and it's like, wow, that's crazy. How is that possible? It's Yo-Yo Ma, man. He is a he is a crackerjack. He is just a he is a beast. Um, I should point out that Mark Lee Mark Lee plays cello, though he he gave it up a while ago in favor of the guitar. Yeah, I literally it, it's true. I I literally sold the cello that I once had to buy a new electric guitar. So. Um, my my cello playing days are far, far behind me, but I am not having any sex with any Kardashians. Just for the record, okay. <laughs> I'm like Asian. That. I might also play the cello, but that's as far as my connection with Yo Yo Ma goes. Hey guys, that's... let's let's not stereotype all Asians as having sex with all the Kardashians at the same time because that's, <laughs> that's totally unfair. Don't let don't let, let Yo Yo Ma tarnish the image of of the uh, of the Asian people. <laughs> Of the East Asian, you know, community and peoples. Uh, On the red carpet, Newt Gingrich stopped to chat, said that there would be no talk of politics, but his wife, Callista, let slip that they have watched Mamma Mia together, the Meryl Streep uh, uh, 2008 film adaptation, many times, and that his ringtone, Mr. Gingrich's ringtone, is Dancing Queen. Wait, so G- Newt Gingrich has only one ringtone on his phone? He doesn't have, like, multiple ringtones and for I different don't know people? If that's, I don't know if that's Mrs. Callista ringtone, uh, Mrs. Callista Gingrich's ringtone for Newt, or whether that's <laughs> Newt's ringtone on his phone. I'm just reading the AP story here. You know, I'm just scanning down the, uh, uh, the, the thing. Wow, that's great. Uh, Newt Gingrich, Dancing Queen. Um, <laughs> I hope he has different ABBA songs for all his ex-wives, too. Like Waterloo and yeah, and like the other ABBA songs. If you change your mind, I'm the next in line. Take a chance, take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. Yeah, exactly. I guess that's the Uh, mistress song, not the ex-wife song. I guess, but you know what? Uh, You know, just like Yo-Yo Ma teaches us, just because you're at the Kennedy Center Honors doesn't mean you can't. You don't need to get your rocks off from time to time. Like Yo-Yo Ma needs needs his his rock salt, as Beavis and Butthead would say. I, yeah, I thought that was what, what the lyrics of that song were for the whole time, for the longest time, because I totally missed the point of that Beavis and Butthead uh, <laughs> video. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like the song "Get Your Rocks Off." Was it the Black Crows? That that is. Um, no, that's uh, that's Primal Scream, sounding uh, very much like the Black Crows. So I gotcha. So conversion. Yeah, and so they have a song "Get Your Rocks Off," which John Parrish does a kick butt uh, karaoke version of. He rocks that song karaoke. He fills the room yeah. with it. It's amazing. So, um, but there's a B- old Beavis and Butthead video where they watch that and they speculate that rock salt is a euphemism for sex, and like it's a way, like <laughs> that's what you say when you do it is that you get your rock salt. You mean like like one on the road? Like yeah, yeah, that's, that's how they do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Get your rock uh, salt. Get your rock <laughs> salt. Exactly. And so I, for the longest time, thought that was sincere and that the humor of it was just that they did it with funny voices and did not realize that they were being ironical. Um, and so that's why Yo-Yo Ma gets his rock salt. You know Beavis and Butthead is back, right? That they're they making, are back. Yeah. Uh, or are they back? Is, it, uh, is that correct? If you have, a, if you have like a, a singular entity like a, that is expressed through like a plural noun expression, like this, this talks me up all the time. Like when I'm doing editing. Uh, well, this it, is it depends. I'm, like, uh, right? Like um, the show Beavis and Butthead is back because the subject is show. Uh, right. And I, Don't and, say show. And I would argue that uh, 
hey guys, Beavis and Butthead is back, if you are referring to the show, would be the correct version. And Beavis and Butthead are back if you're referring to the characters individually, uh, collectively. You know what I mean? Although it's Beavis and Butthead do America, not Beavis and Butthead does America. Although, because there they're talking about the individuals and they're not talking about the show. They're talking about the character Beavis and the character Butthead together do America. Doing America. Exactly. Fair enough. But uh, you know, instead of music videos, because you know MTV doesn't play those anymore, they're right. they're doing their commentary on reality shows and on like there was one on an episode of Teen Cribs that was just uh, it was just incredible. Uh, oh, awesome! Yeah, and they're making fun of uh, shows on their same network too, right? Yes, like they're making commentary on Jersey Shore and other MTV shows. Yeah, because yeah. they don't have to buy the rights to it and it's free publicity. Which is the same reason they did the music videos in the past, too, because they already had the rights to use the music videos, so sure. it's cheap. Yep, definitely. So that's awesome. So, yeah, so uh, Kennedy Center Honors. I mean, Matt, do you think all these people deserve it? You know who they are, sort of. Yeah, no, I, I know who all these people are. I, I think they're, it's the only bill where you're going to see Sonny Rollins and Neil Diamond together on stage. Uh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Sweet Caroline. It probably doesn't deserve. The good times never felt so good. <laughs> just, let's send the pockets there, guys. We've devolved into like extra verbal communication. Harsh, scat, bebop, Neil Diamond. We're not going to top that with whatever else we have left to talk about. I, I agree. Oh, that, well, I we agree have something that, awesome to talk about. Yeah. Yo, Yo, Yo Yo Ma is a is a lazy choice. Uh, to a certain extent, Meryl Streep is a lazy choice, right? I think That's Barbara true. Cook is is sort of inspired because she's not, I think, famous, famous, but is a really good artist. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. It's it's kind of a Big Mac of uh you know, it's kind of a Big Mac. It's it's uh yeah. it's not that good, but but yeah. it's just fine. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Just yeah. like just like Yo-Yo Ma's uh, Kardashian orgies. <laughs> so we're they're like just pretty much okay. He's not his favorite. Wherever cello music is played, Yo-Yo Ma will be there. It's like a little known fact that sex with all the Kardashians is actually not nearly as sensual as uh playing Dvorak. Um, it's much more sensual to <laughs> to rock out. By the way, I, I just want to make a quick before I I'm I'm totally off the rails today. Uh, so I, I don't I make no apologies, but I do acknowledge it. But I want to say, Mark, that idea of selling your cello to buy a guitar to me sounds like a great like exploitative like baseline meaningless but catchy John Mellencamp song. Like just like about country living. <laughs> like a, my mom got me a cello and sold it to get a guitar. Like it's just like it has this rustic charm to it that just seems uh totally like like uh like cougar legit. Well I mean um, to be really to be really Cougar Mellencamp, which is apparently a genre now, Cougar Mellencamp <laughs> It would have to be, you know, your mom and dad split up, your mom lives in the city, your dad still lives in, like, the, like, lower class section of town. Become, like, a successful private school scholarship student, but you really want to play electric guitar like your dad did, because your dad was a rock and roll musician, and your mom was slumming when she met him, and, like, uh, like, okay, I think I've just written this song right there. Like, I've got about some 31 seconds of material, so, uh... Mark, let's do this. Johnny's got his six-string and hawk. You know? Yeah. No, so wait, John, you mean, you mean he's got his four-string and yeah, hawk? he's got his four-string <laughs> and hawk. 
<laughs> he used to make it talk. He used to make it talk so tough. Uh, is there anything else you've written recently, John? Other than this John Cougar Mellencamp song? <laughs> nice segue. Well played. Yeah. Uh, well played. So. Oh, a, king, a kingly segue. So, yes, as I mentioned on the open thread this past Friday, uh, I just released on Amazon and on Barnes and Noble's platform as well for the ten of you who use it um, a novel that I've spent a couple of years writing and revising and working on. So it's a, uh, it's a contemporary thriller set in Boston called Too Close to Miss. It's a, it's a very quick read, and it's available for only 99 cents. And if you navigate to it through overthinkingit.com, we get some of that affiliate credit, which is always helpful. I, I and, feel and, bad, though, if it's coming out of your end, John, because you're... It's, it's not. It's not. Uh, no, no, no. It, it, that comes out of Amazon's end. Okay, good. The- a lot of stuff comes out of oh. Hey-o! Yeah. Oh. I've read um, a previous draft of it, um, and John, I don't know how much it's changed, but uh, even at that point, it was a real page-turner. I, except they can't really say it's a page-turner because it doesn't actually exist in dead tree form with actual it's, pages, it's a, it's a real, so it's a real it's, it's finger-swiper. Yeah, a real screen-swiper. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, a real edge-of-the-Kindle button clicker. Um, <laughs> are you going to write a novel at some point called What Up, What Up, What Up? <laughs> a, th- a thriller in the ghetto it's like be more careful it's great um <laughs> but yeah so that's awesome so wait so so well let me ask you let me ask you a question i know our main subject on this is I, to talk I about a, i have a lot of questions too for john. i know john doesn't want to talk about himself but i think we should make him because i'm really fascinated <laughs> by this and and think uh it's awesome yeah. Okay. So, I, so, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Feel, pepper me with questions. Go for it. So, so here's my first question. So you wrote a thriller, right? Yes. And now, and, and you, I know you pretty well, and <laughs> you strike me as a dude who tends to stay pretty level-headed about things. Um, like, where was the sort of psychology of thrill? Where would you, like, locate the sort of thrillness that you either channeled into this book or took out of this book? Was it like an inside out where you had to like access the thrillness inside of you and then like put it on pages? Or do you like determine the things that are thrilling and then sort of like build a scaffold around that and like fill in the gaps with elements from your life that are more relevant? I mean, I know you are also a, you know, Brazilian jujitsu master. So I guess something in your life isn't into, I'm not going to give the impression that you're boring, but you're like a pretty chill, mellow dude. Like, like what does it mean? Like where does, where does John P. Novel get his thrill like where do you get your groove back from wow well i i am gonna have to turn this question over to vigo mortensen's character from the dial m for murder remake that had michael douglas in it you know of course i'd expect nothing less that makes if you you remember that one where where vigo mortensen plays this tortured artist you know he has stringy hair and like an unshaven beard you know he creates art really passionately like he like attacks a canvas with a paintbrush and then he just sort of sinks into this depressive haze until Gwyneth Paltrow calls him up and sleeps with him again. And then Michael Douglas finds out and wants to kill her and hire him to do it. And just various and, and some, you are good at these stories. This story is, story is very, in, in, in well, I, I didn't write this story. <laughs> this, is, this is not, this is not my story. This is someone else's story. It's just coming through me. We're, we're sitting around a campfire and I'm recounting a tale to you of, of Viggo Mortensen and Michael Douglas fighting over Gwyneth Paltrow's heart. Which, which is what I do whenever I go camping. Go on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Some, someday, like, like Reign of Fire, when they, they retell the Star Wars stories around the, the campfire because you know, the, old, the old ways have died. Yeah. Uh, some, someday, when, when you know, the, the giant alien bugs come, we're living in our post-apocalyptic wasteland, I will retell the story of the uh, Dial M for Murder remake, which I... Like, <laughs> 
<laughs> Not the original Dial M for Murder, which I, no. I won't even bother with. No, no, no. This is about Vigo Morton. No. To answer your question, <laughs> to answer your question with something approaching sincerity, uh, I mean, one of the things that has always been important for me as a writer, uh, not just as a storyteller, but as a writer in more or less any form, is sort of sculpting the reader's emotional response as best I can. Like, I, I want to, I, I try very much to stage, you know, the paragraphs and the, the points uh, that I'm, I'm making when I write an article to, you know, to get people to have realizations at a certain point. And on overthinking it, for instance, it's, the subject matter is obviously a lot drier because it's a very sort of detached criticism of popular culture. But I, I do try to stage people like, oh, okay, here's, you know, here's the background of what we're reviewing. Now, here's a point you hadn't considered. So I try and stage it that way sort of like as a, as a surprise. And then we dig into that a little further. And then I try and bring in some other unrelated points, et cetera. So what I'm, what I'm going for ultimately is sort of sculpting this, this dawning realization by the end of the piece, which I think I hit maybe 50% of the time. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. And I, I bring that up because I think I, I try to touch on something similar in the thriller genre. Like I'm trying to pace the story and sort of sculpt the emotional response over the course of the story by, you know, by pitting a lone narrator against forces beyond her control, by raising the stakes, by isolating her from support, by forcing her to dig deep and get creative and get, you know, and get vicious to a certain extent and building a story based on that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the obvious thing that responds from that is her question mark. Yes. (laughs) So to, to walk you a little in the creative process, this is also something I wrote about on my own blog. So in reading a lot of thriller novels, a lot of, Lee Child, Harlan Coben, Joseph Finder, uh, Tess Gerritsen, Barry Eisler, people like that. You know, I've sort of, you know, really, I've really plunged into the thriller genre and gotten a sense of it. And because one of the things about me, and this is something I confess, is that I'm a big, big sucker for revenge stories. Like, I, I buy far too much into that that trope as it were. Like Taken, for instance, that terrible Liam Neeson movie, I own it, and I could pop it in and watch it right now. (laughs) That movie has almost nothing to recommend it except that Liam Neeson speech that everyone's seen in the trailer, where he picks up his daughter or he picks up his cell phone, and that his daughter's just been kidnapped on the other and says, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're doing with my daughter. If if you're after money, I don't have any. Et cetera, et cetera. That that whole thing just gives me chills. And I recognize... Skills, yeah, exactly. I recognize that it's it's not good as art. (laughs) But but it speaks to, I guess, what we'd call the lizard brain, like that primal, like, sort of, you know, revenge-driven, like, yeah, kill thing. And, you know, I, I, I acknowledge that. So... Big fan of thrillers, really soaked up the genre. And one of the most common thriller tropes is, you know, you have a guy who's living a fairly ordinary life. His family is killed and he, he seeks revenge on the killers, etc. That's that's plug and play as far as tropes go. And I was thinking about that. And I was like, well, wh- what can we do just for like a thought exercise? What elements of that can I reverse and make an interesting story? And I thought, well, okay, what if it's the wife and the husband and the rest of her family are killed? It's like, well, that's interesting, but that's just reversing the gender for novelty's sake. So what other options do we have? And then I thought, okay, what if it's, you know, the husband, his family is killed, and it's the husband's mistress who is the first person at his bedside? 
and where and she is actually the protagonist. She is the narrator of the story, and that's where I got the idea of uh, Mara Cunningham, who's the protagonist of Too Close to Miss, which is the which is the novel that we're talking about. So just taking that concept, the the character emerged from there because I had to think like, all right, if she's sleeping with a married guy, what kind of person is she? And also, what kind of person is she that, you know, if this if this gentleman's wife and son are killed, that she would be willing to put herself at risk and, you know, track down the killers and sort of solve the mystery? Because on one level, there's the fact that, you know, as as more and more people find out that she was having this affair, they start suspecting her as being the murderer, and she has to sort of clear her name that way. But also, you know, she's sort of driven by a mixture of, I guess, guilt and self-discovery to sort of resolve this one past chapter of her life. Mm-hmm. So, John, uh, when I was reading it, I was wondering, and then hearing you talking about it, I was wondering if you'd chosen uh, the, you know, the gender of the, of the narrator or the protagonist as any sort of, like, the way to stretch yourself creatively, as in somehow, like, I'm going to make this a little bit more difficult for myself so that it'll, like, bring some, something else different out of my writing as if I were doing it, uh, you know, more straightforward fashion with a male protagonist. That was, that was definitely part of it. Uh, I'm, writing a female protagonist when you're a male is pretty challenging. It's not just like, it's not just like writing a male protagonist and every now and then using she instead of he, as I've, as I've noticed. Uh, <laughs> is, it, is, it, is, it, is it harder than say, I don't know, uh, dissecting uh, feminist issues in pop culture with an all male pop culture, uh, podcast channel? <laughs> Well, well, I don't know because we, we we never really put anything financially on the line when we do this. Whereas yeah. I, I've put a, a good amount of, of time, at least, if to say nothing of of what it cost me to, to format and, and get the book publication ready. So we'll see if it pans out. Who knows? But uh, but yes, it is it is tricky because and I I I'll, so this is this is something I, I, I a feedback I got at several points is that you know th- this book has gone through several drafts and in the very first or maybe second draft uh it wasn't you know it's first person first person narration the entire time and i I got a couple comments back like until i was like five pages in i didn't think this this person was a female and part of that may just be genre expectations but part of that may just be you know i somehow you know i write in what i guess is a masculine style and this is part of the difficulty that i can't really turn my eye that much in on myself to see what parts of my writing style are inherently masculine or inherently feminine. I mean, aside from the part where, you know, I'm talking about how great someone's breasts are and like that, that's masculine. You should raise everyone's voices an octave or two too, because they're very (laughs) low voices or tip offs. I can definitely do that. Text, you know, say I I said to him in a voice that was much higher than a guy's because I'm a woman. That would, probably be, that would probably be the easiest signifier, but we'll yeah. see what other options we have. A lot have. of adverbs, right? Novels need a lot of adverbs and a lot of different words than said. You know, like exclaim. Yeah, a lot of adverbs, a lot yeah. of adjectives, uh, and as and as much narration as possible to make sure everyone's on the same page before the action starts. Right, absolutely. That's... Uh so uh, can I ask you a question? This is, this is a little more process, and you should tell me to F off if you're not uh, interested no, in, in answering it. Um, but Oh, so now I, get, now I get to tell you to F off. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> here's all this podcast. I finally have a license. 
the, uh, um, sorry, a lot a lot of writers talk about sort of discovering characters and sort of discovering plot and structure as they go and a lot of writers talk about sort of plotting carefully and sort of uh, like uh, arranging the scheme uh, of a plot beforehand and it, it's it strikes me that in a thriller where the plot is a really important I mean we're just the kind of the sequence and also the the sort of novelty of incidents is is a really important part of the pleasure that people get reading your book um, that it's important to kind of plan a lot, uh, a lot out uh, beforehand. But did you? I mean, how how did you proceed? Did you talk? To in, did you proceed intuitively? Did you have a plan and you executed the plan? Were you surprised by anything in the process of writing it? So for this one, I started with an outline. Like I outlined the entire novel before I started writing it. I deviated from the outline at more than a few points. So I mean, there were a few points where. The plot was either going in a more natural or a more interesting direction than I had originally envisioned. And I thought, well, rather than rather than straightjacketed, I'm just going to keep going, see where this takes me. So I did have I did have the overarching structure in mind. I knew how it began. I I knew several of the points I wanted to hit along the way, and I knew how it ended. Uh, I had to. And obviously, this had to go through several several revisions and and complete switches around to uh, to get uh, publication ready. That said, I have written a couple other novels uh, since then, and I'm working on another novel using these same characters uh, later in the series at the moment. And I haven't outlined those, and they've they've worked at least as far as first drafts go. So I don't know I don't know that I'll be outlining in the future, but I do know that within I do know that within the industry, you know, other writers are split on this. Like, for instance, uh, Lee Child. Uh, Lee Child, I know, does or does not, excuse me, Lee Child doesn't outline. Uh, Joseph Finder does to a limited extent. Uh, and so it, it, I guess it just depends on taste. I mean, and it, it also kind of depends what you mean by outline, right? Like if you write down a list of your ideas so that you don't forget them, you know what I mean, as they come to you, that's an outline. Uh, right of a of a type, you know. I mean, there's so, there's that. I, I, yeah, I guess it's you know the varying degrees to which you organize it. So an anecdote I you had a plan. An, oh, sorry. An anecdote I've heard uh, is that uh, Robert Ludlum, the author of the uh, the Born uh, series from which the movies with uh, with Matt Damon were made. Uh, what what I've heard from from uh, authors who knew him is that Robert Ludlum would actually write like a like a 300 page single spaced outline before he even started the novel or he, he's done that at least on one or two occasions. That, and that, that strikes me as the far end of excessive because if you're writing 300 pages, single spaced, you've essentially written a novel right there. So like why, why even, you know, get out of bed in the morning. Uh, and then, you know, you have the other end of the spectrum where you have people who start with just, you know, I need a compelling idea and I need some interesting characters. And then from there I can go. Sure. So it, it depends. Yeah, I guess it's probably a matter of individual, um, individual preference also, and maybe maybe the particular problem you're trying to solve creatively. That is to say, this novel needed an outline. You know, maybe the next one won't, or maybe two down the line you'll find that it does or something. I don't know. Yeah, possibly. Um, do do you find do do you find a tension between the kind of work you do as an overthinker, that is to say, as an analyst of cultural products and as a producer of of cultural products? I mean, do you find that those things are in tension with one another? It it can be tricky because well, in writing a female protagonist, I I wanted well, you know, I had the objective of did telling you use, an. Int- did you use the flowchart? 
<laughs> I should have. I really should have. Oh, uh, it's good. I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to go back now. Uh, I'll, I'll, maybe, maybe toward the end of the podcast, I'll go back and I'll find the flow chart and I'll see where I'll see where my narrator fits on there. But, uh, I mean, so when writing, you know, my goal is to tell an interesting story that's compelling and that people will, you know, find worth following to the end. But at the same time, I'm also very conscious of writing a female character. And one and I'm thinking things like, well, I want her to see I want her to seem feminine because I don't want her to be, you know, a guy in a skirt because that sells short the, you know, that sells short the female experience. But at the same time, you know, I'm not a woman. So my knowledge of what's feminine is limited to, you know, the women I know and my experience of femaleness in pop culture, which, you know, is fraught with all its other issues. So there's sifting through that and finding, you know, what's genuine what's artificial but still recognizable enough that I can tack it in there and still make use of it, and what's just completely bogus and needs to be thrown out the window. So it's it 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 was tricky, yes. I mean, particularly Mark, you asked about, you know, was I was I stretching myself and taking on a female narrator? Uh yes, absolutely. So that was that was one of the things I was very conscious of, both when writing and when revising. Cool. Now, Matt, you said you had a whole bunch of questions, right? Like you had a lot of – we were teeming with questions. I thought, well, I, I thought, thought it would be polite to let someone else get a word in edgewise. Oh, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. I'm just – because I'm sitting here thinking I've been talking so much. If you got these questions just boiling over, like I need to ask these questions of John about his book, why don't you ask another question? Well, I want to – I mean I want to talk about digital <laughs> publishing a little bit, which was the, the thing – now that we're running short on time, I mean that was the thing that we got into it saying that we would talk about, right? Because I think it's yeah. – I I think the, that the way John has released his book is awesome and kind of represents the the future of uh, you know not just books but of TV and movies and you know um, sort of new new genres and media you know as yet unknown and that uh, you know so is there I mean what do you think John of the, of digital publishing has it I don't know. Has it uh, lived up to your expectations? Because you are, you are, in addition to being an overthinker and a novelist, you are a uh, marketing professional. And so, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that your, uh, you know, your launch was uh, sort of planned out and intentionally, very intentionally done. How, um, I mean, how, how do you feel about it now that it's, now that it's happened? Well, it's it it is it is a daunting process because you you realize just how just how full the field is like the 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 shelf as it were the digital bookshelf is pretty full and standing out above that crowd is uh, is tricky. Yep. So, I mean, having having sold however many copies it's been in the first couple of days it's been live. I mean, the the last time I checked, the the book is in the top. I think it's somewhere in the top ten thousand of of Kindle titles, which uh, on one level doesn't sound like much. On another level, is really impressive when you consider just how many people are throwing you know products on the Kindle digital publishing bookshelf, and you know the fact that it's moved any numbers at all is is something. Uh, that's that said, even if I were even if I were going a more traditional or legacy publishing route, I would still have the same burden. Like I would need to market this stuff myself. Like no one, uh, unless 
you know, unless they get the entire publishing house behind them and like, oh, this is going to be the next, you know, Twilight or Titanic or The Notebook or what have you. No one gets a really big publishing or no one gets a really big marketing boost from the publisher. Right. Everyone has to everyone has to do it on their own. So right. I mean, the the agent will help you and you might get your managing editor at the publishing house helping you and point, pointing you in the right direction. But really the legwork like, you know, handing out review copies, setting up book tours, uh, networking with other authors that that the author is expected to do on their own. So in that sense, I'm I think I'm more or less on on an even keel with anyone in a legacy publishing model who would be in the same same boat. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. It is interesting that the value prop for legacy publishing has gotten so bad that it's making the publishers less and less relevant too, right? Because I mean, you hear about Amazon taking over a lot of the stuff from legacy publishing now that even that it seemed like they were going to continue to delegate, right? Like their own in-house publishing and exactly some of these books. So yeah, so it's like, well, God, I guess I guess you couldn't continue to sustainably offer nothing to anyone. Um, sorry, I'm sorry that that business model didn't work out for you. Um, I don't mean to be mean about it, uh, and I just stepped on a plate, so I apologize if you heard any noise. Um, but uh, you probably didn't, but that's okay. But yeah, that is kind of interesting that it's like there are businesses where that, especially legacy businesses, um, from sort of less up to speed technologies, where it's like, yeah, you know, I don't feel too bad about this moving on and doing something else. You know what made me think about that today as I was walking through New York and I saw a chock full of nuts store that also had like a full menu. And I was like, there's a, there's a company that decided to innovate to survive because chock full of nuts is not something you see a lot of anymore. <laughs> you know, they have actual sandwiches, which is crazy. So are you going to, are you going to be doing talks? Are you going to be doing like book talks, um, going around and, and talking to people at places or just like standing on street corners, like talking to people and <laughs> asking for money? Yeah. Telling them about, you know, Lyndon LaRouche's theories on the, on the president. <laughs> yeah, I should definitely do that. Uh, that would be funny if you went out there and started campaigning for LaRouche, but just tried handing out like links to your book. Like, <laughs> just like no and, LaRouche material. And, and, they, and they couldn't, and they couldn't really, could they really do anything about it? Like, you know, oh, you know, what are you doing on our street corner with your, your crazy theories? Like what? Your theories are crazy. Well, but. the Lyndon LaRouche people can't sue you because the government's controlled by Satan. So that. Exactly. Take me to their Satan court? No. Well, what exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so I mean, I'm not. <laughs> I, I I don't know that there's much of a book tour I could do necessarily. Uh, it, really, the the possibilities for marketing a book are so wide open that I'm I'm not really sure what to do. So, speaking of, if, if anyone on the podcast is listening and you know has a book club or a book blog or something like that and wants a a complimentary electronic copy of the book in just about any format. Uh, let me know, and I'll email it to you. Because uh, I, I have I have no problem getting this out there for people to uh, for people to talk about and talk up and hopefully give nice reviews for. But no, you know, readers, that's, that's... Re- uh, listeners, and readers of Overthinking.com, it's a freaking dollar. Give John his freaking dollar. My God, he wrote a book. <laughs> the guy wrote a book for you. <laughs> Hey, John, I got an idea. You should do a book tour of the various uh, suburbs outside of Boston that you mentioned in the book. Because <laughs> based on the way you yeah. described it, they sound like the exact, uh, you know, target audience for this sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, I, by I've, targeted media audience, I mean not targeted at all, right? That, now that now that most now that more people have been have been reading the book, I've I've been re- I've been somewhat relieved that you know I've had folks who live in like Gloucester and uh, you know the, the North Shore reading the book and and not being you know totally put off by the way I describe Everett or Dorchester or Somerville, which are which are suburbs of Boston for those of you who yep those of you who don't live in the area and which you know which I. I don't depict as complete, you know, grime-soaked hellholes, but... <laughs> what happened to realism, man? No, I should say, I live in Sarah, so I should be mean. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, this, yeah. This, this novel does have, you know, a couple of knife fights and abductions and fist fights, and they have to take place somewhere, so I just so don't why want... why not to... Everett? Oh, why so they why not? can't they happen in Everett? Exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Is there, like, a whole subplot in Gloucester where you go in great deal detail describing the rampant epidemic of teen pregnancies? <laughs> 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 There's a local color joke for you folks. <laughs> um, that's that's a dated reference, though. That was, like, two years ago at this point. That, like, the, the pregnant... There's a babysitter's club for you, by the way. Oh! Is the pact of teenagers at that uh, high school in Gloucester who all made a prom... They, they were reported by the news as making a pact to get pregnant before graduation, which is, in fact, not what they did. They just all slept with the same homeless guy. It was pretty sketchy. <laughs> I'm going to write a, I'm going to write a tell all. I'm going to write a book about it. Have you considered a sex tape? Um, maybe we can get Yo-Yo Ma to hand over a couple of the Kardashians for the night. I don't think, I know that you have someone special in your life, but if it led to great book tours and I know that she's too classy a lady to participate in such a thing. So I'm saying if we could find you a couple Kardashian, maybe we could Photoshop something. We can use a video editor to make it like CGI. Um, no, a text adventure oh, based on the book. I've been going with this. I, I've lost the thread. There are, we're trying just, to help you. We're trying to help you market your book. Yeah, if you if the marketing so falls on you, mark, you're going to market my book by CGIing me into a card. I, I yes. <laughs> why, why is this not obvious? <laughs> Come on, haven't you ever been on Twitter? This is how the world works. Right. Right. SEO optimized. A lot of yeah, people. Exactly. A, a lot of people are doing video ads for books. I mean, I've seen. Yeah. I've seen half a dozen. Right. Uh, I'm, and this I, I probably shouldn't be saying this as someone who makes a living doing internet marketing, but I'm leery of the success rate of internet ads for well, really anything but for books in particular, because uh, I mean it, it's it's two different markets, and you whenever when you're doing any sort of advertising, you really have to have a pretty coherent strategy before you traffic the first ad. You have to know what you're expecting. Uh, what you're expecting to get, what your metrics are, what you'd consider signs of success or failure, etc. And I mean, so maybe the people who do video ads for books, you know, have have sufficient data on it, and they know they know what's going on. But uh, I I don't have any such plans. I will say that the commercials I see for books on TV ever are like the dumbest commercials ever. Because it'll be like, <laughs> the, the latest James Patterson novel, there's a great story about a woman who goes too far. Read it. And it's just like a picture of the book, right? And it's just like really ominous description of some things that might happen in it. Like the latest I'm, reading, book. I'm reading off the back marketing cover. Yeah, exactly. It's like right on par with like, like a regional like appliance dealership. Like it's like that's about where the advertisements I've seen are. Although I guess if six people are doing it on the internet, then it must be a real thing, right? A half dozen is what we said, so that must be happening. No, but we should sell this book. Uh, I mean, I don't want to. I don't. Want, I'm not saying we're turning over like the full power of the overthinking it franchise. To this, I think, as an overthinker, I find this interesting because I, I, I when Matt brought this up, uh, or was it maybe it was Mark? I forgot who brought it up. 
Um, but the tension between being an overthinker and being a creator of art, like I've always looked at um, what what I, the kind of criticism that I like to do and the kind of analysis that I like to do as from the perspective of somebody who like wants to make this stuff rather than somebody who wants to sort of use it as a way of understanding the world because it allows you first of all to have a lower lower threshold for demonstrating your evidentiary proof of your assertions um, and it lets you work from in, in inspiration more and second of all it like it feels like you get to generate something it feels more generative and it feels like you get to unlock a part of your brain that you don't get to do when you're just like pouring over old manuscripts so i think it's really interesting that you're writing this book and that we can talk about okay well what is it like to like go about trying to market it and trying to sell it and like and, and transferring that way of thinking about these things to you know the stuff that's part of our life that we maybe don't think about those functions as being important in, right? Like yeah. you know, you know, how did the strong bad people decide to sell T-shirts? How did people? How did the Homestar Runner people decide that the way they were going to make money off of their website was to like sell T-shirts with the pictures of the characters on them, and that like no other model was the one that was going to work, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be the canary in the coal mine for you know. Creating media, marketing media, developing media, etc. So, yeah, ch- I'll I'll check in with you guys on the continued success or or lack thereof of the uh, of this project. No, so, be, let's be optimistic. Continued success. Yeah, marketing schemes that we can do in the comments. Of Mighty podcast. victory! You should charge. Uh, you should challenge other authors to a knife fight in the various <laughs> suburbs of Boston. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yes, that's that's the best way to do it. Because A, no doubt you would win, and B, you get all kinds of free media for that. The press would be all up and down that. Yes, I would definitely get in the newspapers for starting knife fights. <laughs> well, if you want, some... <laughs> go ahead. If you want to get John's book, uh, what I would suggest you do is to click over to overthinkingit.com and go through our Amazon affiliate link. It's the holidays, and you're buying presents, uh, including dozens and dozens of copies of John's book for uh, all your friends and family, uh, or whatever you happen to be buying on Amazon. Uh, We have the Amazon affiliate link prominently displayed on the homepage of overthinkingit.com during the holiday season, as well as some uh, gift picks our uh, our recommendations. I haven't checked the standings. I, I should do that. I should check uh, how we're doing. But uh, I think Community was pulling ahead of the uses of Enchantment by by Bruno Bettelheim. And uh, for bragging rights, the uh, the Overthinkers, uh, I'll award one of them. Uh, I'll, I'll award the gift pick award to whoever's gift pick gets bought the most times by uh, by listeners and readers. Um, but uh, no matter what you buy, whether it's one of the things we recommend or not, if you click through any of those links and buy something from Amazon, we get a little kickback. Uh, it's nice uh, round about the holidays when we're paying our beginning of the year hosting bills. It's a great way to support us without actually taking any extra money out of your pocket. Though, if you want to take extra money out of your pocket, you could uh, click on that PayPal donation link or buy a couple episodes of the overview and get some alternative commentaries to your favorite movies uh, also. We know you have a choice of Amazon affiliate links to use to support your favorite blogs around the holidays, and we're glad that you use the one on overthinking it. <laughs> and not daring fireball because that guy has enough money already um so uh yes absolutely until next week visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't deserve my four string for a six string
I got two more strings. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Traded my four wheel for a six wheel. Policeman said I can't drive it on the highway because it's a armored personnel carrier. It's not street legal. Street legal. It's not street legal. Trade him a four legged dog for a six legged dog. <laughs> Where did I, the man left me on the side of the road unconscious and took two of my kidneys? Have you ever seen a six legged dog walking down the side of the street? If you ever seen a six legged dog, you You've seen me. That's a deep cut. That is a deep cut. <laughs>